Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. We maintain the peace through our strength. Weakness only invites aggression. Trust, but verify. Well, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. America's best days are yet to come. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak. I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. On this week's episode, Roger is joined by Mrs. Kay Coles-James, the president of the Heritage Foundation, one of the largest and most influential think tanks in the world. Throughout Mrs. James' tenure at Heritage, she has been dedicated to helping formulate and promote solutions to the many issues Americans face, from fighting poverty, to improving our schools and our healthcare system, to reducing the size and scope of government. Before becoming president of Heritage, Mrs. James was a lifelong grassroots activist who unapologetically fought for conservative American values at the local, state, and national level. Roger and Mrs. James discuss her journey from a Richmond housing project to serving four U.S. presidents, her thoughts on conservative priorities for the 21st century, and the Heritage Foundation's special connection to President Reagan. If you enjoy the conversation, subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts, and remember to leave us a five-star review. Thanks for listening. Mrs. James, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to have the opportunity to talk about Ronald Reagan for 45 minutes. This will be fun. That's great. And I know you have a lot to share on the subject. Uh, exciting for us here at the Reagan Institute. Um, and before we jump into President Reagan and, and, and the time for choosing speech, which will really be the focus of this session, you have a great quote, which um, I'd love to read back to you and get you to expand on. Uh, and it kind of tells part of your story, at least when I've heard you uh, mention it before. You said that, quote, you didn't become conservative despite your roots. You became conservative because of them. Could you just uh, share with us what you mean by that? Interestingly enough, I didn't even know I was a conservative until I was being interviewed by a reporter. And uh, he walked through this list of issues and asked my opinion on each of them. And he said, oh my, you really are conservative. And I said, no, I'm not. And, and I, I was actually annoyed that this reporter would think that I was a conservative. And that goes to the very heart of part of the problem that we have today, because most Americans don't know or understand what a conservative is. I have a very simple definition. A conservative is someone who has the audacity to believe what their grandmother taught them. <laughs> and so, quite frankly, my grandmother taught us some common sense conservative values and principles. And as a result of that, it wasn't odd for me to become, a, I never became a conservative. I was always a conservative. I just didn't know what kind of label to put on it. And when I saw how those values that I was raised with and that were embedded in me improved the quality of my life, I knew that those were the values that were gonna be so important to this entire nation. And so that's why I'm fond of saying I'm not a conservative. Um, in spite of the fact that I came from poverty and a welfare mom and 
uh, all the pathologies that exist. I am a conservative because of it, because I know that the things that we believe contribute to human flourishing and help pull people out of poverty, help people grow businesses, protect our freedoms. And so that's why I'm so fond of that particular quote. <laughs> well, I, I am too. And, and uh, you know, just in your explaining it uh, and, and who you are uh, and your outlook, uh, you know, you, you mentioned a little bit of, of, of your own biography and, and personal story. You know, in the essay you wrote for the Reagan Institute on uh, President Reagan's time for choosing speech, you really emphasize poverty and, and, and how a country and a society and people ought to respond, what we can do uh, to help those with less. And you just mentioned it now as well. Uh, tell me about kind of how that has been kind of the focus a lot of what, what you write about and, and have taught. You know, that's why I believe that at this particular moment in our country's history, <clears throat> it's more important than ever for us to make sure that our conservative voices are being heard. The country is eager, eager to find solutions to some really complex and difficult problems. How do we lift people out of poverty? How do we resolve the racial divide in our country? How do we win back our economy that was doing so well, but now is you know, being dismantled? How do we protect our freedoms uh, around the globe uh, from those who would do us harm? And at the end of the day, the answers to all of those and many more problems are, I believe, embedded in what we believe as Reagan conservatives. We know how to improve education gaps in this country. We know what works. We know how to help people come off welfare. So we don't have the option of sitting back and allowing ourselves to be canceled in this moment. The American people are looking for solutions and looking for ideas. And unfortunately, what's happened with the left is they have made an entire cottage industry out of trying to silence our voices. And one of the reasons I speak even louder now than I ever have before is because I know that the values that I was raised with, the values that I had the privilege of working with Ronald Reagan on, are the things that will improve the quality of life for every American and protect our freedom. So we cannot be canceled. We must continue to speak into this moment. So, wow, I mean, the, the, the language of canceled, of course, is, is, has been a theme, um, you know, uh, headlines today in terms of uh, Dr. Seuss books and, and reaction to that for many on, on the conservative side, pointed as an example uh, of, of, of a quote unquote, cancel culture. Uh, but there is a lot of people, young people in this country that look at the past, you know, quote unquote, look at their, uh, the common sense from the grandmother, you know, to, to, to quote you from just a few moments ago and wanna see in that only prejudice, only the imperfections, only the, the, the constructs of the past uh, that were not just enough. Uh, how do you counter that? Because you, you certainly engage all the time. You're a thought leader with people who would look at perhaps the imperfections of the past uh, to reject it all. 
Well, the first thing I do is go back to uh, my faith-based roots. And one of the things that I know is we are all sinners and fall short. <laughs> There's not a perfect human being that's ever walked the planet, except maybe one. And so as a result of that, I think you have to contextualize everything, the history. You know, what was going on in the culture at the time? What did we know then? And what are the things that we know now that we didn't know then? And we have to celebrate the good things that people did without in fact uh, dismissing all of their contributions, perhaps because of a lack of knowledge, perhaps because of ignorance of things at the, in the moment. I will continue to read the wonderful Dr. Seuss stories to my grandchildren and many of the wonderful lessons that he taught there. And I recognize that our founders were not perfect, but boy, they were really quantum leaps ahead of many of the people of their time and in their day. And so I, you know, I, I, I just abhor this cancel culture that's in our country today. Uh, I was just speaking to someone uh, in another interview shortly before this and got the idea for an op-ed that I want to work on because as a black conservative who's been at this for almost 40 years, I'm an expert on being canceled. I was canceled from day one in my community and in other communities because if it's one thing that liberals hate more than a conservative, it's a black conservative. Do you mean by that you are canceled more because you are a minority within a minority or because yeah. the majority Society, the quote-unquote establishment really didn't want to hear from, as you described yourself, right, Black female conservative. Liberal America did not, did not want to hear from any African-American conservative because we were going counter to their narrative. And as a result of that, um, the, 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 the narrative that was painted about who we are, they tried to put a wedge between us and our own communities. Right. And so, so there were many in the African-American leadership community who would not invite us to conferences, would not invite us uh, to the table to speak, would not allow us to offer our ideas about how to solve problems. So I'm coming up with a guide for how to survive cancel culture, because I've had to do it longer than almost anybody uh, in our country. Amazing. Well, I look forward to, to, to reading that. And it's, it's quite an interesting twist in terms of what, you know, the popular understanding right now of the quote unquote cancel culture and, and then your own experience uh, being a thought leader, black conservative uh, in, in your own community. I uh, want to hit on a little bit of the history between Reagan and the Heritage Foundation, of course, you are the president of the Heritage Foundation, the most prominent of the conservative think tanks. Um, when Reagan came to office, it wasn't as established as it is today. Um, and it really left its mark by focusing on, my understanding, the substance, the ideas, the principles captured most in the quote, you know, mandate for leadership, which was, uh, 1,100 pages, imagine that. Somebody's willing to read more than half a page, right? 1,100 pages, three volumes of policy proposals. And uh, we have here that two thirds of which 
were adopted by the Reagan administration. I mean, that's not just you speaking to the history of it. I mean, you lived this because you were in the Reagan administration and were probably involved in the generation of those policies and then the implementation. Well, you know, that's a real fun story to share, particularly with those uh, who love Ronald Reagan like we all do. Um, you know, when he was coming to office, the Heritage Foundation was a small, fledging, new sort of organization. And uh, saw an we saw an opportunity. I was not there at the time, but I'm told to say, my goodness, if we really do get a conservative president, wouldn't it be interesting to hand to that president a set of policy initiatives for if you wanted to govern and know policy in every area, domestic and foreign and economic, what would that look like? And so the heritage scholars went to work on producing that huge volume, volumes actually, um, with policy proposals. And uh, I am told by individuals who actually served in the Reagan cabinet that he just passed them out to the cabinet and said, find your chapters <laughs> <laughs> and look there and you'll have a great guideline for uh, the policy initiatives that we wanna promote in this um, administration. And by the way, I want your listeners to know as well, we still honor the legacy and life of Ronald Reagan by having a Reagan Fellowship. And the Reagan Fellow at the Heritage Foundation right now is uh, Becky uh, Dunlop, who was sure. in the Reagan administration. And I'm sure you're very familiar with her. And so we make it a point to take the lessons that we learned about how to work with him on initiating a policy agenda and how we take uh, that experience and amplify and multiply it. And so we regularly produce now the mandate for leadership for any incoming president, but Ronald Reagan was the first based on the, um, how he used it in the administration and the attention that he called to the Heritage Foundation, that really did put us on warp speed and uh, help the organization to grow. So there should be no surprise that there is an affinity uh, for Ronald Reagan at the Heritage Foundation. We know that to be the case here at the Reagan Institute in DC, which you know is the DC office of the Reagan Foundation. Uh, yeah. You know, We kind of stand on the shoulders of all the work that you and others at Heritage uh, have done. Uh, and we're grateful for that. Uh, you worked for the man. You knew the man. Uh, oh. Just give me some, give us a little, you know, your, your whatever is top of mind when you think about uh, your own relationship with President Reagan and your service in his administration. I've, I've, we've talked about this before. I just love listening to it. Let me just give you one quick story. Some of your listeners may have seen the movie, The Butler. And it was about the butler that served in the uh, White House. And I was sitting in that movie with my husband and I was so furious at how they treated the Reagans and implied in the movie that Reagan had invited the butler to a state dinner in order to um, improve his press image or as a sort of a gimmick. And I was so outraged that I sort of said out loud in the movie theater, 
I turned to my husband and said, you know, I'm probably the only one in this theater that was actually invited to a state dinner by Ronald Reagan and sat at his table and enjoyed his company. And I am so annoyed that they are portraying that man that way up on that screen. And so <laughs> Charles was going, shh, shh, shh. <laughs> people are trying to watch. But uh, even in that moment, I wanted to protect his legacy. Uh, I sat at that dinner table that evening. Uh, That's I super think cool. Guests, yeah. yeah, so you were with him at a state dinner. Oh yeah, the guests, several actually, but the guest that particular night was President Mubarak of Egypt. And uh, we shared stories. And my favorite was, now I'm intimidated. I'm at a state dinner at the White House and you know all of what that implies. And Nancy Reagan was known for her hospitality and her glitz and glamor. I'm a poor kid from, from the projects. And I'm sitting at the table looking at all of the silverware there. And the <laughs> president put me completely at ease by saying, well, Kay, they tell me you just start on the outside and work in. And I said, thank you, Mr. President, I will follow your lead. <laughs> so he was an incredible man. And I really get annoyed at how history portrays him sometimes and his relationships. Um, that's, a, that's a great story. And, and, and you know, that goes to his humanity and just kind of personal connection, which obviously made him uh, a successful politician. Uh, but his ideas are also something that uh, popular scholarship tends to uh, de-emphasize or not focus on. Um, we uh, partnered together on this project uh, looking at President Reagan's speeches, and you were kind enough to write an essay on uh, what you refer to as, quote-unquote, the speech. The speech. Talk about the time for choosing speech. Uh, the context, of course, is 1964. It's really where he's kind of coming out with this political voice. He was known as an actor beforehand. And you seem so animated by the ideas in this speech. Give me some, I know I, you teach on it, so give me some I, of the lecture. Absolutely. First of all, if there's anyone within the sound of our voice who has not heard that speech, that's their homework assignment. They right, need you heard it, everybody. We'll link to it. <laughs> they need to go hear that speech. And one of the reasons they do is every time I listen to it, I realized, oh my gosh, how prophetic it was. Uh, he could easily, easily with a few minor changes give that same speech today. Mm -hmm. And it, it, it had such a profound impact at the time. Uh, he was actually campaigning for Barry Goldwater, uh, but it sort of launched his career because as a result of that, People looked at him in a different light and decided to ask him about running for governor in uh, California. So it sort of launched his career. But that speech laid out, as far as I'm concerned, the threats that were uh, really uh, facing our country then. And when you listen to it, you will realize there's many of the same threats today. The solutions that he offered were real and lay the groundwork for the solutions that we look at today. It is, when you look at political rhetoric, I think it is up there as one of the best um, examples of that. And um, 
I'll, having talked about it again, I'll probably go back and listen again today. I always find it motivational and inspirational. And, and it's, it's what, what I like about what you just said, um, it's a speech you can read, certainly, of course, like any other speech, and, and it's reprinted you know, many places. But there is something special or that comes off that you don't otherwise get when you listen to it, as opposed to just reading it. And uh, uh, the great thing about YouTube and other you know, online media is that you can actually listen and watch him deliver uh, those remarks. Absolutely, go right to YouTube. Uh, if you haven't been canceled yet, if they haven't taken him down. I think it's still there. <laughs> <laughs> good, good. And uh, listen to uh, A Time for Choosing. I mean, Let me ask you, one, what, you know, there's a lot of ideas in that speech and, and, and you know, I think it's uh, focusing on kind of individual liberty and freedom Relatedly, uh, government, and he was so concerned about the great society and what President Johnson was pushing uh, and the size of government. Let's, let's focus on that one. Um, certainly listening to you, you feel that and, and Heritage Foundation is, is, a, is a policy priority that endures. That is keeping government small and not interfering with people's freedom, their liberty, their individual lives. The American people though, probably as much today in, in, in 2021 as in 1964, are increasingly looking to government for more. Um, is that in your mind being revisited across the country? Is it being revisited by conservatives? And, and how do you think about um, kind of the role and size of government in 2021? Is it any different in some ways than you, you were thinking about it earlier or you know, when you first read or listened to the speech? Yeah, I think that um, one of the main contextual differences, you know, is 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 really rooted in where the country and the culture was during the time when he originally gave that speech back in uh, I think it was 1964, yeah. and where the country is today. We're losing. <laughs> In 1964, no one would have called themselves a socialist. Today, people wear that banner proudly. In 1964, he was issuing a warning. Today, we can see that that warning was certainly valid. And we are now at a place where a great many Americans uh, are warming to the notion of a socialist country. And uh, I think that we have to do an even better job of sort of uh, educating the American people and pushing back on that. Nowhere, nowhere on the planet and never in the history of our nation has socialism ever worked anywhere. And I just don't think that we have a generation of young people who know and understand that. Yeah, you make a distinction in your in, in, in your essay, which we'll, we'll link to, which is, you know, there's this kind of lure of socialism um, that's certainly prominent now. You know, you, you reference uh, you know, Bernie Sanders or AOC, you know, or, or the Green New Deal, right, as, as this lure, but kind of they don't necessarily, the, the, the people who are enthusiastic about it don't quite understand exactly what it means in terms of means exactly. of production or, 
or just how much control it would give government over their lives? You know, Americans by our nature are kind and generous and thoughtful and compassionate people. And as a result of that, if you frame any policy as kind and generous and compassionate, they are likely to embrace it. And if you paint another policy as mean-spirited and tough, they will reject it. And so a large part of what I do, and sometimes it's confusing to some conservatives, I must admit, is try to help people understand why it is that when we want to help people out of poverty, it's not kind and compassionate and generous to get them hooked on entitlement programs and sap their strength. That sometimes in order to help people, you need to give them and expose them to a work ethic. You need to help them understand the value of work and what it does. We want to be there to give a helping hand. What American wouldn't? But by golly, we want it to be targeted and limited. And so we have to figure out, and this is what Reagan was so good at. That's why he was the great communicator, because he could take these policies and talk about them in winsome and compelling ways. And a lot of times, even with a sense of humor, so that he could win people to our sides. And one of the things that disturbs me about where we are as a conservative movement right now is that uh, we don't know how to share our policy ideas in winsome and compelling ways that would want, that would encourage someone to want to be one of us. And, and that's, that's a great nexus point between policy and the, your, our politics. And, and I think it was, you mentioned President Reagan, the great communicator. Um, we've talked about this before. The speech really is, is so uh, significant because of the way he talks about the direction of politics. And he, he says, this isn't about you know, left or right, right or left, it's up or down. It's about how we can bring people up. It's, there's this kind of optimistic and positive element. If I'm listening to you, you're saying that's in some respects what we're lacking uh, within the conservative movement and Republican Party, that it's about how we bring people up and 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 in and this optimistic, positive way. Absolutely. You know, no one has more to smile about, to be positive about. No one can offer more hope. No one can offer more solutions than I believe conservatives can. And as a result of that, with all of of the the vitriol and the anger and the bitterness that that's going on in our country today, um, I think we could all use a little dose of Ronald Reagan's optimism, of his humor, of his ability to inspire and motivate, to offer positive change. All of the things that, that this country is so hungry for right now um, is embedded in what we believe. We, we, we hear that a lot. I, it's one of, I mean, people could say we use a lot more of, of President Reagan and, and you know, 
my own national security background, I'm thinking, oh, I also want to have, you know, better missile defense programs. What they're really talking about is this positive outlook, this optimism that you described. You know, but on the policy level, you know, focusing, we're talking about poverty and, 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 and creating opportunity uh, for all Americans and, and, and improving the station of everybody, every American's life. Have we done a lot enough? I mean, the critique is, is that uh, you have a, a roaring economy that has left too many Americans behind, manufacturing jobs and middle-class workers being the party of, 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 the, of, of the American worker is something that you know, for, for too long was not the emphasis or the focus of, of the conservative movement and the Republican party. Kind of what's your, what's your take on that? Are we, uh, as conservatives and the Republican party, truly now the party of the American worker, are we doing enough to focus on them? You know, I really, really, truly, and I'm not saying this in any sort of a cheeky way, but I really don't understand that whole argument. And the reason I don't understand it is because I came to the conservative movement and, in fact, uh, to the Republican Party because I believed it to be the party of the working class. I believed that the Republican Party and the conservative movement had real answers for how one pulls oneself out of poverty. I don't like any kind of politics that divides us or pits us against each other. The only problem I have with rich people is we don't have enough of them. <laughs> And at the end of the day, I think it's important for all of us to remember that it is, when it, it, it is within the economic sphere where, where wealth is created and then that wealth is used to fuel every other part of our economy. Where do universities get dona donations? How are charities in fact uh, financed and fueled? Um, who builds businesses and starts you know, starts corporations? I, 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 I really don't like politics that pits the working class against uh, wealth and wealthy people. I believe that in a country like ours and a culture like ours that um, that we, we, we're all in this together. And the only problem I have, as I said, with rich people is we don't have enough of them. But the reality is the policies and the opportunities that exist in this great nation are there so that people can move more easily between the various economic sectors. Who thought that a kid like me born to a welfare mom, an alcoholic dad, in the slums of Portsmouth, Virginia, couldn't even afford to go to a hospital, was born on a kitchen table, would have the opportunities that I've had. This is a phenomenal nation with phenomenal opportunities. And you know what I love about my story? It is not unique at all. And I dare say within the sound of our voice, uh, are, are people who can point to their own stories, that the opportunities 
of free markets and limited governments, a strong national defense, the opportunities that those values provided for us to succeed. And where there is freedom, there is the opportunity for growth and development and economic freedom as well. And so I became a conservative Republican for those reasons and not because, because it, the, the values that we believe in provide the opportunity for all Americans to achieve and accomplish their dreams and purposes. It's passionate and compelling uh, case there. And it, one of the things I, I read in a profile of, uh, or the interview um, that you recently did, I believe it was with the Atlantic, uh, you talked about uh, your college education and, and where you went to college, Hampton College, and uh, historically back college, University HBCU, where a lot of your values and mindset actually came from your time there. At least that's my takeaway from reading the interview. I think a lot of people assume that uh, historically bad college would not produce the president of the leading conservative <laughs> think tank in, in, in this country. Uh, but what's so nice about reading this interview is uh, one, your clear affinity for your your time there and, and the college and the fact that you're kind of uh, making people rethink about their assumptions about an HBCU and the politics okay. and the values you might get from one. Talk Absolutely. about that. Absolutely. Well, one of the things you need to know about Hampton University is one of our most prestigious alum was Booker T. Washington. And he had a profound influence on that university before he went off to Tuskegee. And, uh, you know, it was, I, I came out of a, a, a situation where I was a part of the, the students who integrated the schools in the South. So going into this all black institution was sort of a nurturing experience for me, albeit, although uh, most of my professors were not African-American, by the way, I was shocked oh, I got there. Yeah, it was a great mix on that faculty. But it was there that I learned what so many did. And it was there that I learned about, um, you know, self-sufficiency and independence and the value of a quality education and what it means to work in the community and to give back and all those things. You know, I, I think that there's more there in common uh, with most minority communities, by the way, whether they're Hispanic, African-American or Asian, embedded in our roots are certain conservative values. The problem is that that doesn't translate over to the political arena and there are some very real reasons. Yeah. Well, why talk, talk about that for a second because that's where I want to go and then we're gonna uh, get one great Reagan story from you and then, and then wrap this up. Um, but you know, you mentioned before you, you've been this minority in the minority community. This you know, uh, uh, conserv black conservative. Um, why hasn't there been more uh, support and participation of, of black Americans in the conservative movement in the Republican Party? And uh, what's your outlook? Do you think that that might change? Might improve? Oh yeah, it's going to change, and it is going to improve. Uh, or there are many of us who are gonna die trying, I can tell you that. Um, I think that um, 
focus groups and pollsters have far more to do with politics than real policy. And for those of us who care deeply about policy, that hurts. That cuts us <laughs> yeah. to the quick. We care about policy. And uh, someone said to me one time that uh, candidates, when they're running uh, as a conservative, hire policy wonks. And on the other side of the aisle, progressives hand, uh, hire marketing experts. <laughs> but the marketing experts told them a long time ago that African-Americans will never, ever vote for anyone that they perceive to be a racist even if they agree with them 100% on policy. And so it has been a tactic now for quite a while and it grieves me every time I see this. Uh, I talk uh, as an example about my very close friend whom I absolutely adore, Ed Gillespie, and seeing what happened to him in Virginia where they try to paint him as a racist because conventional wisdom is if you can paint a candidate as a racist, you don't have to do anything else to squash them in the African-American community and to gain those votes. So even though they may be there uh, in terms of policy, again and again and again, if you can convince, and that's why you hear it, that's why you see it everywhere. That's why you see so much talk about white supremacy and racism. That's why they keep that story front and center, because once they do that, you've got it. I want to push back a little bit, um, not because I disagree with how identity politics and race and politics has uh, contributed to what you described, but I mean, we had Liz Cheney on recently, uh, and, and, and she's quite concerned what happened on January 6th. And, elements within the Republican Party uh, that have, if not embraced, tolerated, looked the other way when it comes to white supremacy and allowed for racism and anti-Semitism to be in the party. Surely that's contributing to some of this as well. Oh, of course it is. But it is such a small part of who we are. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I think that we can do as a movement is unequivocally denounce that element and, and, and to be crystal clear about that. Because not only do minorities not want to associate themselves with someone who they perceive to be racist, but neither does soccer mom. That suburban white female who, who if she is convinced that the conservative movement or the Republican party are racist, she wants nothing to do with them and nor should any of us. So we have to be unequivocal in our denouncing that. And Liz Cheney is absolutely right. And we need to be, we need to be more vocal about that. And we need to say in no uncertain terms, that's not who we are. One more and question I on this, believe, oh, sorry. I believe if we do that, we will be the majority movement in this country. Will Hurd, former congressman from Texas, great guy. Um, uh, I'm sure you, you've gotten to know him from his time in Washington, perhaps before. Uh, I had a conversation with him and he's, he's written about this saying that if the Republican party doesn't look more like him, more diverse, you know, more of the minorities that you're talking about, it won't have a future. Uh, do you agree with that? Of course, 
Of course. And what we need to understand, and I, this is a part of the gospel that I preach, is that the census data tells us that by the year 2050, and now it's even coming down to maybe 2045, minorities will be in the majority in this country. And by golly, you know, they throw open the doors of the country and we have no immigration policy. It may happen even much uh, sooner than that. But the reality is if that's true, and I believe it to be true, then how in the world can we as a movement ignore huge swaths of demographics that have not traditionally been Republican or conservative? How do we, how do we ignore that? that and I, my message is, I wanna go into those communities. I happen to believe, by the way, that if I had been able to get to Obama when he was in college, I may have been able to flip him. <laughs> and so I think it is so important Indeed. for us yes. to, to be in those communities, carrying our message, talking about that, because if those communities are going to be in control of our country, I have a vested interest in getting them prepared for that by letting them know the values that we believe in and what works and why. That, that would have, that's a great counterfactual. I, could, I, would, I would watch that movie, read that book. If uh, Mrs. James got to uh, President Obama, you know, <laughs> shortly before he entered Columbia University or whatever. Um, we're, we're running out of time here, but I can't let you go without you uh, sharing the, what I think of the Rudy Hines story. This really kind of uh, just great story about President Reagan's relationship with a young uh, uh, Black student living in D.C., Rudy Hines, that you happen to have You know, I wish everyone knew this story about Ronald Reagan, but a dear friend of mine who's actually a neighbor, and she's now a fellow at Heritage, uh, Kyron Skinner wrote a book about Reagan called Reagan in His Own Words. He's a huge while, contributor to Reagan's, uh, I mean, just learning, seeing everything that Reagan wrote. I mean, oh my he's gosh. a great scholar. Yes. Well, she told me this story and then I researched it a little bit and I want to go find Rudy now if somebody wants to help me do that. But Rudy was a, a kid who uh, was in school back in uh, uh, the early 80s. And uh, many people don't know that Reagan was a prolific uh, letter writer. And uh, he became a pen pal with this little black kid in Washington, DC. And his name was Rudy, Rudy Hines. And they wrote hundreds of letters back and forth. And one of the things that I just loved about Reagan um, was Rudy invited him to come to dinner at his house one time. And the president and Mrs. Reagan took him up on it. And Rudy's mom, you know, the president said, I don't want anything special. I just want to eat dinner with you and your mom like you all normally do. So they ate on TV trays in Rudy's tiny apartment. And the picture of Ronald Reagan sitting there eating fried chicken and salad. And uh, I forget what else they had, rice or mashed potatoes with Rudy was just so incredible. How, how old was he? What do you think around this time? Oh, he must, I, I don't know his exact age, but he was a kid. Uh, Rudy must have been, you know, like nine or 10 years right, old. Not high school. Wow. 
no, no, not in high school. And, and I, I, I would love to see the letters going back and forth, but he encouraged him. He tried to motivate him and he didn't do it for press because nobody even knew he was doing it. And, and that's who he was. That's the kind of person the president was. Well, that's uh, that's the lightning round favorite Reagan story. I'm going to nominate that one. But as we close out, we're going to ask you to share, like we do with all our guests, your favorite book about President Reagan, uh, favorite Reagan speech, and favorite quote about President Reagan. Wow. Okay. Favorite you get all three, two, or just one, whatever you got. Favorite book um, is... Um, uh, I love you, Ronnie. The love letters that went that that he wrote to uh, to his wife, along with, of course, she'd kill me if I didn't say Kyron Skinner's book, which was <laughs> excellent. Um, favorite speech, of course, a time for choosing, and favorite quote is probably the one that I do almost in every speech: "Freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction," and I remind people of that all the time. Uh, we don't pass it to our children in the bloodstream; it has to be fought for. And so, why should anyone be surprised that we're in a battle right now and we have to fight? Thank you so much for being on the show. We look forward to having you back in the not too distant future.